Well, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to just look at one verse as our primary focus uh, for this morning, and it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. And if you want to also cross-reference a New Testament verse, it's Acts 13, 22. So I'm just going to read both verses uh, for you, and then we're going to pray and go right into the message. Uh, 1 Samuel 13, 14, and Acts 13, 22. But now... The kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him a leader of the people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Acts 13, 22. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Let's pray. Father, in that video we just saw, we are reminded with the question of life's pursuit. What are we pursuing? And for many of us in that pursuit of life, we often pursue the things that lead to a dead end or maybe even off a cliff. That you desire for us to pursue something that is good, something that is worthy, but something that is eternal. Because there's only one thing that ultimately satisfies us, Lord, and that's you. And so often uh, in our pursuit, we, we sort of fall into the trap of thinking that these things around us are the means to happiness or success, but we realize that it's the opposite. So in this new series that we're in, embarking in together, help us, Lord, to follow after you, to pursue you. Let you be the desire of our heart, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this morning, I want to sort of paint a picture for you and ask you a question. Imagine you're on the road of life and you're on this road to success. If I were to ask you, do you want to be successful? Uh, do you really want to have success in your life? How would you, what would your answer be? Well, I would imagine that that question is similar to the question, do you want to be happy? Every one of us, if, we want to, if somebody asks us that question, do you want to be successful? Do you want to be happy? Really, it's the same answer. Of course we want to be successful. Of course we want to be happy. Nobody would say the opposite. Who doesn't want to achieve their goals? And yet, in reality, according to survey, that 92% of people never achieve their goals. In other words, the reality is that most of us set goals for our lives, never attain it. Think about in your own life when you were a little uh, kid, you were thinking, oh, this is what I want to be. How many of us became what we wanted to be? Now, it's not that we can't. It's that, that maybe we had sort of a, a different detour in life. Or maybe every new year we have a resolution. And we say, this year it's going to be different. I'm going to do this, this, and this. And at the end of March, we find that none of those things actually became actualized. Part of the problem with success is, is how we define it. How do you define success? Well, if I were to look at success and what success would look like, I think for many of us, if you look at Webster's Dictionary, we define success as accruement. In other words, it's the attainment of money. We think that if we have a lot of money, that we will be successful. And so we pursue this road of success by being financially independent. Uh, and, and hopefully at the time that we retire, we will have a safe nest egg. By the way, do you know how much that nest egg would be? 
according to Charles Schwab, they did a survey and they found out to truly be happy in retirement, you need to retire with $1.7 million. Now, for many of us in this room, that's like an unattainable number. And yet, in reality, that's what they said that we need to be successful. Well, sad thing about money is that the more money that we have doesn't necessarily make us successful. Uh, Princeton University had a study done a few years back that talked about the, uh, equating the worth of an individual, money, with happiness. And what they found out was an interesting number. It was actually 70000 and what they said in this particular study is that 70000 is sort of the medium income that if you hit below that or above that, that your happiness quotient actually decreases. So in reality, more money doesn't lead to more success or happiness. Well, someone once said, money doesn't buy happiness, but it sure buys a lot of Prozac. And when you think about that, that's what a lot of people do is they sort of drown their depression in, in medication. But there's another um, sort of de definition of success. It's not necessarily accruement, it's accomplishment. That we define success by accomplishing things in our lives, uh, recognition, status. In other words, what makes you successful, it's, it's what you do. So we become president of a company we become a principal, we become a surgeon, whatever those things are. And one of the things that somebody told me many years ago is be careful what you wish for because you may get it. You know, even as a young pastor, it's like, oh, my definition of success is if I become a pastor of this size church. And so we have this imagery of saying accomplishment equals success. The reality is once we accomplish those things, we realize that that's not really what success is. What about the third thing? For many of us, we define success as achievement. And that's a, a lot of it is in, in the st sports performance area. Over and over again, we strive for the gold for an athlete, or we strive for a championship. And we think that once we attain that championship or that goal, that we will be successful. Well, uh, a swimmer, uh, many of you know, Michael Phelps, probably the most decorated Olympic athlete uh, in history, has won 28 Olympic gold medals. I mean, uh, Olympic medals. 23 of them were gold. Yet despite all the medals and accolades, he struggled himself with depression and anxiety. In 2014, it got so bad that he locked himself in a room contemplating suicide. He himself didn't feel successful in, even in his accomplishments. You know, if you look at uh, winning and success, there's probably no greater coach in the history of sports than John Wooden. He actually developed this thing called the pyramid of success. And in this particular chart, he kind of uh, decided what, what success was. By the way, John Wooden was a Christian. And in 1934, he was a teacher of, of English to a high school. And he tells the story in a TED Talk where all these parents would come to him and, and, and say, why isn't my kid successful? Meaning, why aren't they getting a certain type of grade? And so he would explain to them that their level of ability didn't match the other level of ability and so forth. And, and as he was trying to explain that, a simple verse came to him uh, from a poem that he read as a little child. He said, at God's footstool, uh, to confess a poor soul knelt and bowed his head. I failed, he cried. And the master said, thou didst thy best and that is success. 
So he defined his own term of success, not in terms of winning championships, because he makes the story that he won as many championships that, that a coach can win, and yet still people weren't happy. So he said success is this, peace of mind attained through self-satisfaction in knowing the effort that you made was the best that you were capable of. In other words, success for him was the peace of knowing that you tried your best. For some of us, that, that's sort of a, a good idea of, of success. So what is success? Well, I think part of the problem is that we as Christians define success from the world's perspective. That we think success is what the world says success is. But here's the reality is that God's definition of success is radically different than what the world says is success. And today we're going to be looking at a man named Saul who sort of is the precursor to David. We're going to be doing a, a, a whole series on the life of David. But to understand David, you have to understand his sort of predecessor, a guy named Saul. See, Saul's definition of success was in many ways the world's definition of success. He was tall, he was handsome, uh, he, was, he was good looking, he was a good warrior, everybody loved Saul. And yet there was something missing in Saul's life. And I believe that the definition of Christian success comes out from simply this, that the key pursuit of our, of our lives should be God's heart. And I believe that's the key to life success. In other words, what God wants from us is to pursue after his heart, and that becomes the basis of everything else in life. See, David was described, interestingly, as a man after God's own heart. He pursued God as his ultimate pursuit. So the question I asked you, or that video I asked you, was this. What are you pursuing? What are the things that, that, that you think will make you happy? And ultimately what Jesus says is this, that the only thing that ultimately satisfies is Christ himself. But you see, Saul was an interesting character. And we're going to be looking at this story a little bit. If you have your Bibles, just turn to First uh, Samuel uh, eight, uh, chapter 8. And I'm just going to give you a quick synopsis of Saul's life. And we're, we're not going to look at every single verse in First Samuel 8, but we're going to begin our journey in Samuel 8. Now, the verse begins by saying this. Uh, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The names of his firstborn were Joel... And the name of his second was Abijah, and they served in Beersheba. And his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, accepted bribes, and perverted justice. And all the elders came and said, Samuel, Samuel, verse 6. They said, give us a king to lead us. This displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. Now, to understand the context of that, you have to understand Israel's history. Uh, Israel was, as you know, a people who were called by God. Uh, they were in captivity in Egypt. They were, they were eventually led into the promised land of Israel. And God, through Moses, established sort of the moral laws of, of how Israel won. It, it would be uh, both spiritual as well as legal. And these are the, the books that we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. So they established the rule of law. And here's the interesting thing about the Pentateuch, that the one who would oversee that would be God himself. It was what we would call from a governmental sense, it was a theocracy. And that as God would oversee all of this, that God then established leaders over the nation of Israel, and they were the priestly tribe of Levi. Now, as the story goes, as... as uh, God established these, uh, these uh, religious leaders. Some of them became corrupt. 
And so God then brought in another group of leaders sort of to separate the spiritual from the legal. And the legal side were a group of men called judges and women called judges. And so we see a whole book in the Bible dedicated to these rulers, these political leaders called judges. Now here's what happened with the judges is that they themselves fell away from the Lord. And as a result, depending upon who the judges were, so went the nation, whether it's Samson or Gideon and so forth. Well, the last judge was Samuel. And so we see that Samuel then had sons who then became judges as well. And what ended up happening is that Samuel's sons became corrupt. They were taking bribes, extortion, and all that. And so the people were crying out, Samuel, we want a king just like every other country. Now, you would think that what they were asking for is we just want righteousness and justice. But underneath what they were asking, Saul was this, or I'm sorry, Samuel was this, that we reject God and we want to be, we want to have a king just like everybody else in the world. And so here in verse 6, when they said, give us a king to lead us, the reason that it displeased Samuel was because at the very heart of this, these people wanted to be just like the world. And so notice what God says as he prayed. As they have done, uh, so verse uh, uh, 7, And the Lord said to him, Listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not that they have rejected you, but they have rejected me as their king. The problem with Israel is the problem with humanity. Is this, that when we reject God, that we become God. When man rejects God, that man becomes God. Really what, what uh, Samuel was reminding the people is, look, if you deny God as the ruler, guess who becomes God? You become your own God. And, and, and Saul is sort of the epitome of that. And, and the people say, we don't care. We want to be just like the world. And here's the problem with human history. And the problem with, with the whole story of David or, or the story of Saul is that we have followed the same trend. That really the, the first sin in the Bible was a sin of rejection of God. And then man, in a sense, usurped God and placed himself over God. And throughout hi hi human history, this is the problem of all of mankind. The Bible has a word for that. The Bible calls that idolatry. Idolatry is simply this, that when anything becomes greater than God, that becomes the thing that we worship. Tim uh, Keller uh, talks about this. He says, sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things the ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. So if you go back to the Old Testament, the first two commands that God gave was a warning that said this, you shall have no other gods before me. You should not make a graven image in my name. Those were two prohibitions against idolatry because God knew at the very core of our human being, uh, humanity, is that we want to separate ourselves from God. But the danger is this, is that we want to replace God with ourselves. And so in Romans chapter 1, you see Paul's classic argument about the people, the Gentiles. He says, for they... Although they knew God, they neither glorified him or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. So God gave them over and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images that look like mortal human beings, birds 
animals, and reptiles. The greatest competition to God of idols is ourselves. And even good things like our families, our money, or even our jobs, or even this, our church. Churches can become idols to people, to some pastors, that this becomes the thing that they worship. This is what drives them. Idolatry is making anything ultimate. And you see, the whole setting of David coming into, into existence was, was really because Saul was the man's man that the people wanted. The problem with pursuing anything other than God is that it doesn't leave us satisfied. It leaves us empty, hungering for more. And so the first principle of this book is really this, is that men reject God, man becomes God. But there's a second principle that is important, that the pursuit of worldly success will reap worldly outcomes. Now, in chapter 9, verse 2, I want you to notice, uh, as people are clamoring for, for a king, God gives them what they want. They want a king just like everybody else. And so God gives them a worldly king. And in verse, uh, chapter, one of, uh, chapter 9 of verse 1, it says, There was a Benjamite named, uh, man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of uh, Bekorath. It goes on, and it says this in verse 2. So this man named Kish, who was very impressive, very prestigious, came from a good family. Verse 2, he had a son named Saul. An impressive young man without equal among the Israelites. A head taller than any of the others. Not only was Saul uh, a a man who was uh, uh, tall, he was, again, that was uh, both a physical description as well as sort of a stature. This guy was so impressive from the outside that everybody wanted to be like Saul. From a world's perspective, Saul had the it. He had the, the, the sort of the look. You know, there are some people like that. You just see them, it's like, wow, that's such an impressive person. And Saul was like that. But one of the things that the Bible reminds us is this. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. That whatever a man sows, he shall reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap destruction. If you sow to the spirit, you will reap eternal life. Problem with, with the nation of Israel is they got exactly what they wanted. Like I said, be careful what you wish for because you may get it. Well, they got exactly what they wished for. This man who was on the outward had everything you would want. But on the inward, there was something missing. Now, interesting about Saul, it wasn't that Saul was irreligious. He was actually a religious person. In the sense that outwardly, he did the religious things. But there was something missing in his core. That instead of following after God's own heart, you know what the worldly outcome was? He was following after his own heart. Throughout the stories, what we begin to see is that Saul basically had one agenda, and that was himself. And that's sad, isn't it? That so many of us, we live our lives thinking that we're doing the work of God, and what ends up happening, instead of doing God's work, God's way, we do God's work our way. I remember when I was a young pastor, um, one of my pastoral, uh, uh, one of my, uh, pastoral leaders reminded me, Whenever you do God's work, do it God's way. Because the temptation is this, that when God doesn't show up the way you think he should show up, that you intervene on behalf of God. Now, where is that illustrated in Saul's life? Well, let me show you in uh, chapter 13 of Samuel. God tells Samuel 
uh, verse 1, he was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. He had a long tenure. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him. And so he has a pretty uh, ex- extensive army. Not only that, his son, Jonathan, becomes one of his generals. And so in cha- uh, verse 5, the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 char- uh, charioteers, the soldiers as numerous as the sand of the seashore. So there was this big battle coming. And God had told him through Samuel, wait till Samuel comes. So Saul waits, and then in, uh, uh, in verse 7, Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops were with him, quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So here's what a, a bad leader does. He's, he's getting scared, because now the battle is about to begin, and, and people are running around in fear. And so Saul, it says to his people, okay, Samuel's coming, but here's what I'm going to do. Because Samuel's not here, I'm going to intervene on behalf of Samuel. I'm going to take Samuel's place. So he does the worst thing you could do. He takes on Samuel's role as the priest. And so he says in verse 9, he says, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings. Now, it's interesting. Just... As he was finishing making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went to greet him. <laughs> Isn't it funny how humanity it works is that, that we think God is too slow. And so what we do is we intervene on behalf of God, and we do our own thing, and we do our own thing, and then God shows up. And what does God say? Samuel's, you think Samuel's really happy? Verse 11, Samuel's question is, what have you done? And Saul replied, when I saw the men who were scattering, and you did not come to, uh, at, the, at the time that we thought I was, you were going to come, and the Philistines were standing, I thought that the Philistines would come against the Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I compelled to offer the burnt offering. And notice what Samuel says in verse uh, 13. You acted foolishly. You have not kept the, the command of the Lord he gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel. The reason that God rejects Saul's rule was simply this, that Saul's heart was not after God. His heart was after himself. And so verse 14, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. I realize that the temptation for us is to do God's work our way. Temptation for pastors, for elders, for church leaders, but even in our own Christian lives, that instead of following God's prescription for life, we follow our own. But what ends up happening is that instead of fulfilling God's plan, that we have worldly outcomes. There was a man named Hudson Taylor One of the most interesting uh, quotes that he had was this. And it's a quote that I would love for you to memorize. It says this, God's work in God's way will never lack God's supplies. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies. In other words, Hudson Taylor was a unique man. In the 1800s, he became a Christian at the age of 17 by reading a Christian tract. At the age of 22, God had specifically called this man to go to a, a foreign country called China. Of course, 
There were very few, uh, hardly any Christians in China or no Christians in China. And so he left in 1853. Uh, I'm sorry, 1854 at the age of 22. And what Taylor was able to do was impressive. He established, he brought 800 missionaries to China. He began 125 schools directly resulting in 18,000 Christian conversions, as well as 300 stations of work, more than 500 national helpers in all 18 provinces of China. If Hudson Taylor were evaluated his life and mission based upon his accomplishment, we would all declare him a success. Yet he had one principle he always lived by. And that principle was, if this is God's work, he will supply his way. And you know what Hudson Taylor prayed? God, if you want me to go, you need to supply. And he waited until God supplied. He would not move until God did his work. And Hudson Taylor was so unique in that he desired that, that God would be in front. And as a result, because God was in front, what is happening in China with Christians being converted is a result of the seeds that Hudson Taylor planted. But it wasn't without sacrifice. Because if you do God's work in God's way, you have to remember something. That there's sacrifice involved. Few in history have sacrificed more for the cause of mission than Hudson Taylor himself. He was willing to surrender all to God. And given the evangelization of China, nothing took a greater emotional and physical toil on Taylor than the loss of his family. He had to bury six of his children. And two wives. In 1870, he remarried, and, and, and he had to bury two children and his wife in the same year. Here's the, the reality of surrendering to God everything, is that everything becomes God's. Now, some of you might think, wow, well, there's, there's, where's, the, where's the joy in that? But the joy in that is knowing that ultimately God's sovereign over all things. And that it is the basis in which we have meaning and, and happiness, knowing that success comes from not doing our own thing, but, but fulfilling God's plan. Saul was a man who didn't get it. He decided, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to make my own burnt offering. Well, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. In chapter 15, the last part of the story is this, that the pursuit of godly success comes through obedience, not sacrifice. Here's the problem with Saul. He felt that worldly success was about doing his own thing. He became puffed up in his own life. And notice this in chapter 15, 22. God calls Samuel to go into battle again. First time, you could say it was a mistake. But second time, you could say it's a habit. And what happened was God says, go to the Amalekites and destroy everything. That was God's command. Destroy everything. Leave nothing behind. So in verse 7, uh, chapter 15, when Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from this place to that place to the east of Egypt, he, notice what he does. He took Agag, this, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But notice in verse 9. I like this butt clause. <laughs> this butt clause meaning, look, he, he, he kind of did his own thing. But Saul... And the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. You know, what's 
Saul does is what we do, is we make bargains with God. God, okay, you want all of my life? Okay, I'll give you all of my life except this little thing. And so what Saul did was simply kind of selective obedience. He did what God told him to do, but not completely. Because in his mind, as long as he could rationalize it, the reason he saved the king was maybe because he wanted to make more political alliance. He was thinking, okay, this king is going to help me for the future. The reason that he saved the, 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 the best lambs and the sheep was practical. Think about this. If you could take somebody else's lamb and it's like really good lamb, why not? It's like it's no harm, no foul. It's going to be destroyed anyway. But what God was teaching Saul was this, that God does not just expect us to sacrifice. He expects obedience because obedience is really the, the, the outcome of what God's heart is, that God wants us to truly listen, to obey. And Saul didn't get that. And so notice when Samuel comes back, he goes, look, what did you do? And then in verse 22, Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in the burnt offerings and sacrifices? As much as obeying the voice of the Lord, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. You have rejected the Lord. And notice this, God's pronouncement. And God has rejected you. The problem with Saul is a problem with many of us is that we're puffed up with pride. At the bottom line is we think we know more than God. God says, don't go there. I said, well, you know, God, I, I, I just need to go there because I, I, I know that you told me not to go there, but I'll go there anyway. And I'll, I'll show you that it's not as bad as you say it is. And we go there and we fall off a cliff. And guess who we blame? We blame God. God, why did you let me go there? I thought you told me not to go there, but, but you should have kept me from going there. See, we are so conflicted. We want both free will and we want God to determine everything. The reality is this, that God said, I told you, you did not listen. And your disobedience will, will destroy the nation of Israel. You know, we talk about knowledge puffs up, pride puffs up. Let me show you a picture. You guys ever seen this? It's a puffer fish. Now, puffer fish uh, in National Geographic had this great little thing. It, it, it becomes a ball to evade uh, uh, its predators. It's known as a blowfish. They're clumsy swimmers. Uh, they're, they have elastic stomachs with huge amounts of water. And sometimes they look so cute, don't they? They just blow themselves up several times their normal size. But these blow up fish aren't cute. <laughs> they're actually very deadly. Most puffer fish contain a toxic substance that makes it foul testing and potentially dangerous to other fish. The toxin in it is so deadly that 1,200 times more deadly than cyanide. There's enough poison in one puffer fish to kill 30 adult humans, and there is no known antidote. Like the puffer fish, we as people can blow ourselves with pride and arrogance to make ourselves think we're bigger than we are. And this pride can become toxic in our marriages, in our friendships, in our church. No wonder the Bible scholar John Stott once said, pride is your greatest enemy and humility is your greatest friend. You know the biggest difference between a person who pursues God and a person who pursues the world? Is that the person who pursues the world pursues themselves. And a person who pursues God pursues humility. The reason that Saul was rejected 
was because he relied upon himself. He didn't care about anybody else. But the unique thing about David was his, at the very core of his heart, he pursued God with all his heart. It doesn't mean David was perfect because we're going to see later on, he messed up really bad. But what he had, David had that Saul didn't, was he had the simple quality of desperation. He was desperate for God. And I think about a guy like Saul, he wasn't desperate for God, he was desperate for himself. And we as believers, the question as we bow before, before God, what are you desperate for? In 1 Samuel 13, 14, it says this, And now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart and appointed him the ruler of his people. Because, Saul, you have not obeyed. You have made yourself your own king. You have rejected God and made yourself God. I think a person who truly pursues the heart of God is the one who lays before, prostrate before God and says, God, I am desperate for you. Let me conclude with one last story. Brian Chappelle is a professor of preaching, pastor at a covenant seminary. And he tells a story in his book called Holiness by Grace. He tells a story about a, a, a mother who had a son. He says, my wife and I have friends whose son in his middle teens rebelled against them and against God. For four years, he protested his innocence by, of his conduct and made promises that were innumerable to straighten up. But each excuse was unjustified and each promise was broken. There was so much pain and so much embarrassment and discouragement had inflicted on the parents that the wife confided to, to them, to Brian and his wife, that she did not know if she loved her son anymore. Her heart had grown hard against her own child. What melted again was a cry of desperation. After one of those, uh, another escapade by the son, followed by another protest of innocence, the mother finally walked away. As the young man sat alone on the sofa in the family room, he began to leaf through a family photo album. And the pictures of better and happier days filled him with increasing emotion. One picture that struck with poignancy was a picture of his mother looking at him when he was a little baby. The photograph showed a son under the approval smiling of a mother. When that photo hit his eyes, it hit his heart. And it, it, the teen called his mother back into the room. Mom, mom, come here. I want to show you a picture. And he showed this picture. And he goes, when I see this picture, I understand why you don't know if you can love me anymore. In this picture, hope fills your eyes as you look down on this little baby. And, the little, and this teenager said, but I dashed all your hopes, mom. Please forgive me for dashing all your hopes. You know what the mother did? The mother's heart broke, and her hardness broke, and she embraced her son with a renewed sense for her love for her son. What moved her, what neither his proclaiming of innocence or his fresh promises to, to better, rather, she was moved by the statement of absolute desperation. 
Here's what the Bible tells us. That God desires for us to have a desperate heart. Desperate for him. The pursuit of him. To become a person after God's own heart. Don't pursue what the world pursues. But in desperation, pursue God alone and Christ alone. Because if you think about the whole story of the gospel, and we're going to be taking communion now, but the, but the story of the gospel is simply this, that God pursued you even though you were running away. And God was willing to die for you so to demonstrate his love for you that while you were still sinners, he died for you. God was so desperate for you that he was willing to lay his life for you. And all God wants in return is that simple sense to pursue him with that same type of desperation. I don't know where you are right now in your, in your life. You may have all the religiosity that Saul had. Saul was a religious man. He went to church every Sunday. But in his core of hearts, he did not pursue God. He pursued himself. 